With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted entirely to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel. Let's get right to it. Our guest is a U.S. Air Force veteran who served in the Cold War, Korean War, and Vietnam War. He joined the Air Force in 1948 at age 20 and was trained to be an air traffic controller. For the next 22 years, he worked in towers, mobile radar facilities, and air traffic centers. He retired in 1970 as a senior master sergeant and came to Columbus from an Air Force base in New Mexico to manage the control tower at the Bolton Field Airport when the airport was ready to open. His decorations include the United Nations Service Medal for Korea, Distinguished Service Medal with Oak Leaf Cluster, Air Force Commendation Medal with Oak Leaf Cluster, and Good Conduct Medal. He's 91 years old, but you'd never know it. From Grove City, Ohio, Michael Shod, welcome to Marching Orders. Thank you. Mike, before we get into your story, tell us a little bit about what keeps you busy these days, your family, your hobbies, and so on. Well, I still fly a little bit. I was a flight instructor and a pilot for 51 years now, and I did charter flying and so on. But I lost my medical certificate a few years ago when I had a pacemaker put in and prostate cancer. So I had to drop my flight instructor rating when it expired a couple of years ago, but I can I still have my pilot license and I can fly and mostly just locally now, taking people for rides or flying for pleasure. And uh, my other hobbies are growing flowers and a garden every year, and I do all my own yard work and everything yet. So that keeps me uh, busy other than taking care of the house and my wife. You mentioned uh, your wife, Marge, yes. and you have uh, kids as well. Right. We've been married for, it'll be 68 years in August of 19. And um, we're both still going to Florida for a couple months every winter and enjoying that. And So you were born and raised on a farm in Minnesota in a really small town called Plainview near the Wisconsin border and Mississippi River. What was it like growing up there and what kept you busy when you weren't farming? You'd mentioned to me that you were in a, a really big family. I think you said there were 11 of you all together. What was it like growing up there? Well, uh, being the oldest of 11, I got to help my dad as soon as I was about 10 years old and uh, worked for the next 10 years on the farm with him. And, of course, we had to butcher, uh, raise chickens for eggs and uh, milk cows. So it kept me pretty busy doing all those chores and everything and plus going to school. And uh, the chores had to be done in the morning 
before you'd go to school and after you came home at night. So that kept me busy. My only time off usually would be Sunday, and I'd love to go trout fishing, uh, squirrel hunting, woodchuck hunting, and I did a lot of trapping when I was young for gophers because you got a bounty for them. Yeah, as a as a fellow squirrel hunter, I can imagine that was pretty fun out there in Minnesota. Yeah, and it made you a good shot too. When I went in the service and uh, went through the military part of the training, weapons control and everything, I got expert rating right away because uh, I knew how to handle guns and uh, was a good shot. And you went to high school and then spent a year at the University of Minnesota before enlisting in 1948. Now, one of your big reasons for enlisting, you told me, was your love of airplanes. Were you always fascinated with aircraft, even as a child? What, what drew you to them? Do you remember? Oh, yes. I loved airplanes, anything that flew, and uh, aviation. I used to build model airplanes when I was younger. And uh, I used to go to any kind of movie, especially during World War II, that showed uh, activity in aviation, you know, like uh, fighters and uh, uh, dog fights and stuff like that. Uh, I wouldn't miss one of those movies. And I'd love to read anything about aviation. So I was definitely hooked on aviation from uh, early age. And you had uh, you enlisted and you had four younger brothers who were drafted into the army. How did your parents handle that? Were they supportive? Did they try to maybe get you to, to lean towards something else? I know you'd mentioned 11 of you all together, but still five of you are, are in the military here. How difficult was that for your parents? Well, it wasn't too bad because it was one at a time uh, as they grew up and got old enough to be drafted. And then they were only committed for two years. And it was after World War II, so it wasn't any war going on. And so it was a good education, actually. Uh, and a couple of them, like me, earned, uh, learned a trade in the service, too. So nobody had to stay on the farm if they didn't want to. And once you got through basic training, you started training as an air traffic controller. What was that training like? Was it what you'd always imagined it would be when you were a kid and you loved airplanes? Or where was your training? It was pretty new to me. I wasn't familiar with the air traffic control part of it. Because like in World War II, a lot of times they'd just have a little old control tower and they'd use flares and light gun signals and stuff instead of sophisticated radio equipment like we have now. And of course, radar was brand new. And so... Um, I didn't have too much idea what air traffic control was about, but they told me on my uh, intelligence uh, score when you first got in that I was suitable for a jet mechanic or air traffic controller, and I had to make a decision. I said, oh, I'll probably jet jet mechanic and he looked up at the board and he said oh that's all filled up so mm. i didn't have a choice but it turned out to be a very good uh, uh training experience and a good career what all does an air traffic an air traffic controller do i know you have some folks in a tower you've got marshalling crews and people on the ground what are all the different jobs well, primarily it's uh, for the control uh, and separation of air traffic so you don't have one airplane running into another. 
and um, increasing the safety around airports. And uh, now they have radar control, radar coverage all across the country and most of the oceans. So uh, everything is uh, controlled with the amount of traffic flying these days. You have to have separation even across the ocean. And uh, so that's what we do. We keep track of all the aircraft and make sure that they have a safe place to land and take off and so on. Was there any one particular part of it that was more difficult to learn or that maybe that you even found more interesting than the others? Well, I started out mostly in the control tower and then eventually went to radar, and that was a little difficult because it was new to me uh, until I got used to it. But um, it was uh, interesting. Wherever I'd go, I'd have to learn a new area, and we never stayed in one base more than three years, and some of them only one year. So you'd have to learn a new area, all the rules and uh, the separation standards, and of course where the high terrain was so you didn't run somebody into a mountain. So it was always different whenever you went to a new base and learned, learned uh, to work in a new facility. Now you had mentioned to me um about uh, the Berlin airlift and that you were in Newfoundland and Bermuda. Listeners, just for a little very quick background, this is shortly after the start of the Cold War in the late 40s. Stalin had just instituted the uh, the Berlin blockade in 1948, basically keeping food and supplies from reaching West Berlin. That led to the Berlin airlift, which basically meant airlifting food and supplies from Allied forces. During this time, Mike, you were in Bermuda and Newfoundland. What was your role in those areas and and why those areas, why Newfoundland and Bermuda at that particular time? Well, these were the main support bases for uh, aircraft crossing the Atlantic to go to Berlin primarily to uh, support uh, Berlin airlift. And uh, being that they didn't have jet aircraft at that time, the propeller cargo aircraft had to refuel en route. They couldn't go all the way without refueling. So we were refueling bases and changing crews and supporting the Berlin airlift at both of those bases. Bermuda was the southern route to Europe, and Newfoundland was the northern route to uh, Europe and the main places to stop and refuel. You're listening to Marching Orders. I'm with Mike Schad. So you were back and forth between Newfoundland and Bermuda quite a bit? Actually, Bermuda was my first uh, overseas assignment after uh, air traffic control school, and I only stayed there one winter, and they asked for volunteers to go to uh, Newfoundland to uh, open a new base up there for supporting the Berlin Airlift. And there was six of us that went to Bermuda. All six of us volunteered for Newfoundland because we didn't like the powdered milk and the powdered eggs and the old... World War II barracks that we were living in in Newfoundland and making about $75 a month. We couldn't do any kind of uh, swimming or, or going to clubs or nightclubs or anything like that. We couldn't afford it in Bermuda because it was a tourist area and a high-priced area to live in. And it's such a, a small, little, tiny island right in the middle of the Atlantic. Was there any sense of, I guess, uh not really claustrophobia, but just just the 
Was it scary at all being in just a small island like that in the middle of the Atlantic? Was there anything sort of bothering you about that? Not, not really. We didn't have a, a hurricane while I was there. The weather was primarily good, uh, warm in the summertime, and a tourist area mainly for Canadians and uh, British people because it was a British-controlled uh, area. And um, it was very comfortable other than that we didn't make any money while we were there and uh, we couldn't enjoy all the uh, facilities that were there and Newfoundland was sounded like a new experience and it was quite different and uh, we had new facilities new mess hall good food new barracks and everything and a nice club and theaters and everything so Newfoundland even though it was more remote uh, turned out to be a, a nicer place and of course being up there is where I met my wife too I was going to ask you about that actually uh you had mentioned to me that she's from Nova Scotia, and you have Newfoundland in about 1,500 miles, almost directly south, is Bermuda. And right in the middle of there, sort of right in the middle of there, is Nova Scotia. And so uh, how did you meet your wife? Well, we used to go on three-day passes when we had the opportunity from uh, Harmon Field, Newfoundland, to Sydney, Nova Scotia on the Air Force uh, cargo planes that uh, resupplied the base up there in, in Newfoundland, Harmon Field, Newfoundland. And uh, so we'd get a free ride down there and back, and we could spend some time where there was some civilization in Canada, enjoy ourselves, and then go back to work again. But you had met her, you had said that uh, she was a waitress. Yes, I used to go to a little restaurant in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and she was working there as an 18-year-old waitress, and uh, I got to know her, and I think three months later, we got married in her hometown in uh, Nova Scotia. All right, so let's get back. Uh, 1952-1953, during the Korean conflict, you're in Korea, and what became designated as K-18, the uh, Gangneung... Air Base, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, yeah. Gangneung. Gangneung, uh-huh. Gangneung. You were a tower chief there. How was your job different in this role? What were, the, what were some of the biggest differences compared to uh, Newfoundland and Bermuda? Well, it was quite different because there was a war going on now, and we had uh, military aircraft at the base, uh, Navy, Marines, and the headquarters for the South Korean Air Force who were given the P-51 Mustangs that we had, the U.S. Air Force had over there. When the jets came over, finally, they gave all the... um, P-51 Mustang uh, fighters to the South Korean Air Force. And uh, I had six uh, South Korean controllers and six U.S. Air Force controllers in the control tower with me. And the, the South Koreans were required because the South Korean pilots only spoke uh, Korean. They didn't speak English, and we only knew a few words of Korean. So when they would take off and land, 
uh, the Korean controllers would work with them. And then when they were on their missions up over North Korea, the other uh, controllers would take over and work the U.S. military aircraft. And uh, while I was there for that one year, I wrote up 36 accident reports, mostly on the Korean aircraft coming back from missions and landing one behind the other. And uh, they had tailwheel aircraft, and there were little short pilots, and they couldn't see where they were going when they were going down the runway. And the f guy, first one landing, sometimes would stop too soon or slow down too soon, and the guy landing behind him would run into him and chop his tail off. Uh, so we lost quite a few aircraft. Some of them were U.S. aircraft, Air Force, military, primarily Navy and Marine aircraft, often the carriers, because when the um, Marine and Navy pilots would come back from missions if they had any hung bombs they couldn't get rid of over the target or ma uh, malfunctions, uh, maintenance problems. They wouldn't let them land on the carriers. They'd have to come and land at our base and get repaired. And sometimes they made some pretty tragic landings uh, because of damage and so on. And this was just south of the battle zone, right along the eastern coastline in South Korea, about, what, 60, 70 miles from North Korea. And as you had mentioned, just being responsible for not just Navy and Marine, but also South Korean aircraft flying missions over North Korea, you're working with English-speaking pilots and crews and Korean-speaking pilots and crews. The language barrier obviously was a problem, as you had mentioned, but even just working with some of the other controllers who were guiding the pilots, how difficult was that just with, just with the language barrier? Um, they had to be very careful uh, and not get them mixed up with each other, you know, and uh, the U.S. military aircraft would douse, give way to the Korean pilots when they come back because they'd be low on fuel and they'd be really sputtering away, ranting and raving on the radio so uh, nobody else could say a word, you know, get a word in edgeways. So we had to give them priority and uh, they did a good job, but we saw a few mid-air collisions while I was there. Part of being a chief anywhere in any job involves conflict management and resolution. But as a tower chief dealing with two branches of our military, along with the South Korean forces, did you have to resolve some differences and conflicts? Uh, sometimes. Um the um, South Korean pilots had a habit of coming up in the control tower and uh, chewing out the Korean controllers if they did something that the pilots didn't like. And I finally had to lock the door so they couldn't get in because the Korean enlisted men uh, controllers were scared of those pilots because uh, they were officers and uh, they wanted respect and they oftentimes didn't like what the controllers were telling them when they were trying to land or take off. So we had a, a, a few problems about that. Another problem was the Korean controllers ate kimchi and in the wintertime, when the control tower was all closed up and a heater going, the breath got so 
thick from the breath of these guys uh, that have been eating kimchi, which is very strong. Uh, we had to finally start letting them eat in our mess hall. That solved that problem. So we could stand being near them and <laughs> smelling their breath. <laughs> yeah, that would be a bigger conflict. That's, a, that's, that's worse than sauerkraut when it comes yeah. to this. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, and then so 1955, 58, you, you went to Germany, and you're working at the Ramstein and Sembach air bases there. Again, dealing with the Cold, the Cold War. But what was your role there, and, and for how long was that, Mike? Well, I started out uh, going, supposedly going to Berlin, and they stopped me en route before I ever got out of the States and said, no, we're changing your assignment to Ramstein Air Force Base, and so I got there and I replaced um, an old control tower chief that was uh, a big old master sergeant that had survived the Bataan death march in the Philippines when the, they had to leave there when the Japs took over, but he was getting ready to retire, so I took his place as tower chief there, and I worked there until... Uh, and, the commander of the airport air traffic controllers at Sembach Air Base uh, talked my commander into letting me come over there and work in their radar facility as a radar controller, which was brand new to me. So that's why I changed bases in the midterm there and spent um, about the last year and a half of my three-year assignment at Sembach Air Base. And the Vietnam War, you served from 61 to 70, and part of that time was in Okinawa, Japan, which was really a key staging point for a lot of military operations against the North Vietnamese. What was the adjustment like as you started your duties there, and, and how was your role different? Well, there I was assigned as the chief of the uh, GCA, which is Ground Control Approach, which is a mobile radar facility, and I was in charge of that, and we guided aircraft uh, into our base, and also uh, Japanese and Chinese airlines used that base at Naha uh, Air Base, where I was, which is the capital of Okinawa. And uh, so we had military and civil traffic there, one runway, and a lot of times uh, pretty bad weather, like uh, typhoons approaching and so on. So uh, the radar was very important there. We'd get control of aircraft that couldn't see the ground because they were flying in thunderstorm activity or clouds, and we'd guide them to the runway. And... Uh, it turned out to be a very uh, good assignment. I learned a lot, and uh, I had uh, young controllers that were just out of school, and I had to help them, train them to do radar approaches. And with all the different bases you were at, how much retraining did you have to do? You alluded to it a little earlier, and uh, you just alluded to it now. I mean, I'm assuming all the rules and laws are changing from country to country, and you're trying to get used to a new a new base. Did you ever get a chance to get comfortable at any one? What was the adjustment like just going from where all the rules change constantly? Well, usually it would take maybe the first 
two months to get used to the new facilities and the new rules and the terrain and and the procedures and so on. And then after that, why you were always being sent new controllers from the states just out of school. So I, as well as being chief controller, I'd have to work shifts and uh, take care of the training records and uh, training people and making sure that they were learning their job and not making mistakes that would cause an accident. So it kept me pretty busy. And of course, I was taking care of a family. After I was over there for six months, we had housing and my family was able to come over to Okinawa and go to school there and everything. And so we had four children there at the time. So I had my hands full. And even the laws were different, though, too. I mean, the laws might be one way in Korea, maybe a different way in Japan. And then, of course, compared to what it's like in Newfoundland and Bermuda, was it difficult just to learn all the different laws related to air traffic control? Well, not so much. The air traffic control procedures are pretty standard all over. And, of course, English is the prime language in aviation. So everybody has to be able to speak English if they're flying an aircraft, even if they're from Japan or China or Germany or where they are, whatever airline, they speak English. And uh, so the procedures are pretty standard, and the language is standard. You're listening to Marching Orders. I'm Scott Hummel. I'm here with Michael Schad. What about the weather? I mean, there, there's different weather in all the different countries and all the different areas. Obviously, Bermuda is far different from, say, Newfoundland. How does how does weather play a role in what you did as a tower chief? Well, I got to be a licensed uh weather observer and of course weather is an important part of air traffic control too you have to know how to take weather sequences and uh, send balloons up to measure the base of the clouds and make hourly reports and other reports special reports in between when weather changes and just as an example we have hurricanes here a hurricane in the pacific like uh, okinawa or japan is called a typhoon but it's the same thing. It's a water uh, storm coming across the ocean, and they can be very strong. We went through one while I was in Okinawa that took two days to go by and 120 miles an hour winds that whole time. And it was so noisy you couldn't hear each other talk in, in the building even. And uh, so you couldn't go outside or anything. And, of course, it did quite a bit of damage, but... Even the native uh, huts and stuff over there, they knew where to put them and how to make them so they could withstand the typhoons. And you spent um, time at bases in California, New Mexico, Virginia, and Florida. How much time did you spend at each one of those? Uh, the ma- the most time was three and a half years in uh, uh, Florida, a base and auxiliary Robert Field, an auxiliary of Eglin Air Force Base, which is one of the largest Air Force bases in the world. And um, I uh, spent three and a half years there doing uh, combat crew training at Robert Field for Vietnam. Uh, 
pilots were coming in and learning to fly the planes that they used in Vietnam. And uh, so my job was uh, helping them train and keeping them separated. And, and of course, they were all new at that airport, too. So they had to learn the facilities and the procedures as well as I did. And I gave briefings to these pilots and their uh, officers, controllers, uh, about once a week, besides uh, doing my stint as a shift supervisor on shifts in the control tower, and I was also in charge of the radar facility. Any uh, particular incidents while you were training some of these these younger pilots? Yes, we had our share of accidents, uh, but there was... Um, no fatal accidents while I was uh, there, but we did lose some aircraft, and I watched one take off, and uh, it was overloaded in the rear and was pulling uh, heavy cargo out with a cable out of the back end so they could use this procedure in uh, uh, Vietnam. They were training for it there, and one of them had a, a big um, raft of uh, heavy Oh, 10 gallon or 50 gallon barrels full of stuff in the back and it didn't come out it got caught in the back so the plane was very tail heavy and it climbed out and it went almost straight up for a while and of course then it stalled and went straight down hmm. into the ground I watched that happen Unfortunately, the two pilots survived that, but the photographer in the back and the flight engineer had that cargo come back and hit them and kill both of them. Mm. Yeah. You made it to retirement in 1970, and then you moved with Marge and your four kids to Columbus to manage the, uh, the control tower at the Bolton Field Airport. Did you still have that military mindset there, Mike? How did you make that military to civilian transition? I guess both on the airfield and in life, was it a difficult transition for you? Actually, not so bad. Um, came up and interviewed for the job uh, from a, a private company that was operating the control, control tower uh, company that contracted with the city of Columbus to operate the control tower there. And he offered me the job if I wanted it. So when I got out in my, on my birthday in uh, 1970 is when I uh, got discharged um, at the end of July, um, we went right up there to my home old home in Minnesota, dropped the family off, and I drove out to uh, Columbus, Ohio, and got familiar with the job requirements. And they were just finishing building the control tower and finishing the airport at that time at Bolton in 1970. So the transition was mostly busy learning the new job and new facility and uh, getting my family back over there when I got a place to live. And then we're civilians from then on. By the way, uh, just speaking of that drive and just making that trip to Columbus, um, you had mentioned to me uh, before we started the podcast here, after you and Marge had gotten married, uh, you knew you were going to be going to California. So just to back up a little bit on that, tell me a little bit about what happened, by the way, when you proposed to Marge and 
right before you proposed to Marge and decided that that was the time. I said, now or never, and uh, I would really love to do this with you and, and, um, and take you to the States with me because it would be a long ways to come back from California to uh, Nova Scotia to see you, and she agreed. And we had to convince her parents, of course. And the day after we were married in the little hometown church there in uh, Nova Scotia, we left for California in the car, an old 1947 Pontiac straight-8 that I had bought up in Newfoundland from uh, one of my buddies that was retiring or leaving Newfoundland for the States. So I had a car. We flew it in a flying boxcar from Newfoundland over to Sydney, Nova Scotia, and got it off the plane. And then when we got married, we got in it and headed out and... We stopped for a week in my home in Minnesota to introduce Marge to the family. And she had quite a time trying to remember the names of (laughs) 10 kids and my parents. But then we had to leave to make my uh, date there in uh, Travis Air Force Base in California, which is about 50 miles north of San Francisco. So we made it quite a trip. We went through the Black Hills of South Dakota. We spent a day in um, Yellowstone National Park. We spent part of a day in Salt Lake City and went swimming in Great Salt Lake. And then we went across the salt flats and up the mountains through Reno, spent a little time in Reno, Nevada, had dinner and continued the trip at night over the mountains down into Sacramento and to Travis Air Force Base. So it was a long ways from the furthest point east in North Carolina or North America to the far west coast of uh, California in one trip. And uh, I just, sorry, I get a little sidetracked there, but I had to just have you tell that story because you told it to me earlier and I had to make sure we included that. Back to Bolton Field. After a shift, uh, you did some flight training in, to earn your commercial pilot license. What led you to do that? Well, I always wanted to fly, and when I went in the Air Force, and they asked me what I wanted to do in the Air Force, and I said I'd like to be a pilot. And they said, well, we got pilots sitting around here with nothing to do from World War II, and we need other pilots. Uh, people doing other jobs so that's how I got to be an air traffic controller but I never forgot that I wanted to be a pilot so I had the opportunity in Okinawa to get my private pilot license at a little primary or used to be a Japanese fighter base in Okinawa and uh, I had um pilots, U.S. pilots for instructors, and I got my license there. And then when I came back to the States, um, I had a flight school at uh, Bolton Airport, and I got my uh, rest of my ratings, um, commercial pilot, instructor rating, uh, instrument rating, and uh, I have the same pilot license now that airline pilots have, uh, except I don't do that job. I just kept in small aircraft, but I got 17,000 plus hours of flying time in the meantime and 50 hours, 50 uh, years of flying. 
And so was that your first pilot license? Was that your after your retirement? Um, was while I was still in Okinawa, it was my private pilot license. And then all the rest of the ratings I got through the GI Bill after getting out of the service, they actually paid 90% of the costs at that time. So I was very fortunate to be able to use that money to get all my ratings and my instructor ratings and my uh, ATP air traffic uh, air transport pilot license on the... Uh, on the the GI Bill. And as you'd mentioned, you've logged over 17,000 hours of flight time training local and civil air patrol pilots and flying charter and business trips. That's almost two years of flight time, not just not just flying here and there over the course of two years, but two years of actual flight time being in the air. I'd, I'd say it's safe to say, yeah, you, you indeed loved planes. <laughs> do, do you think about that, the hours you put in? Oh, yeah, sometimes. Um, I walked away from three accidents without getting hurt. I was very fortunate there. And um, one of them was my fault. The other two weren't. <laughs> but uh, we had some uh, pretty well, good We're not going to just leave it at that. you got to give some details on this one, Mike. <laughs> well, one of them, I ended up landing in a crop duster strip, which was not really a good idea for a type aircraft that I and my student were flying. But uh, we went fishing in a farm pond near his home up uh, south of... Um, Delaware and uh, when we went to take off in the evening it was a very hot June evening and no wind to help us and there were rough gravel on that strip and I barely got it airborne Uh, when it flew out of ground effect it came right back down on the ground and I ended up going off the end of the strip through a fence through a ditch across the road (laughs) and into a guy's backyard (laughs) wow it didn't help the airplane any. Oh, I don't imagine it did. Probably didn't do wonders for his backyard either, I bet. Yeah, I got a, a bucket of fish in my, in my back, too, from the hit in that ditch. And it came up from the back seat and got me. When was the last time you, you, you had said, uh, you told me that you actually really enjoy flying locally. When's the last time you were able to do that, to get in the cockpit? Actually, with a friend of mine that's still working on his instrument rating, uh, we go flying occasionally and practice instrument approaches so he can take his flight test for his instrument rating. And the last time was about uh, three weeks ago, actually. We've had some nasty weather in the meantime. And does Marge fly with you ever? Uh, Occasionally she did, but it's not her favorite thing to do. Uh, well, I don't imagine after telling her that uh, you end up flying in a, a guy's backyard, she might be a little scared to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've gone on some pretty long trips from uh, Columbus to my home in, near Minneapolis uh, a couple of times and back and forth. And I've taken her to Cleveland to catch a plane to Canada and picked her up when she came back. So she's had some time. And what's your, do you own your own plane, Mike? We did for a while. I had a, a little uh, Cherokee four-seater uh, for about eight years with two partners that were attorneys, and I taught both of them to fly. And uh, we formed a little flight school, and I kept it busy, so it paid for operating the airplane, putting in a new engine when it needed it, and so on. And then we finally sold it. What's your favorite aircraft to fly as a pilot? 
Oh, I like uh, six-seaters. Uh, the um, 300 horsepower Saratoga is one of my favorites, and I flew it many hours in that, flying for Bank Ohio, flying checks and bank personnel and so on for a few years when it paid them to buy the airplanes and use them to uh, transport checks back to Columbus Bank for uh, and going to the... Uh, uh, banks in uh, Cleveland and uh, Cincinnati. Our final question, Mike. What advice would you get? What advice would you give to other veterans who are making that transition from military to civilian? I know you sort of stay with the program, doing a lot of the same thing, but in a civilian role. But what would you tell a veteran who's served his or her country and is trying to fit in as a civilian? Well, to don't get to be a couch potato. Stay active and stay healthy and keep your mind busy and uh, you'll live to be a long life hopefully. Um, the main thing is take care of the family and be a good patriot and a good citizen and take care of your health. Senior Master Sergeant Michael Shad, thanks for joining us and thanks for your service. Thank you. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders or let us know about a veteran you believe should tell his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. Check us out online at thisweeknews.com and look on our website for a new section, thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. We'll eventually have all of our marching orders podcasts there, along with some other news and feature stories related to the military. And if you're on social media, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at This Week News. That's at This Week News. For This Week Community News, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening. 